And you can also see in the minor party platforms that they are picking up on that sentiment. Um, so they very much cast themselves as outsiders, outside the political mainstream, and they are you know, really sort of tapping into that concern in the electorate. Yeah, and they promise to keep the bastards honest. Um, <laughs> keep the bastards honest. <laughs> Welcome to the Grattan Report podcast. You're with Megan from the Grattan Institute and today we're discussing the rise of protest politics in Australia. The number of Australians voting for minor parties has been rising since 2007. In fact, at the 2016 election, it reached its highest level since 1949. More than one in four Australians voted for someone other than the Liberals, Nationals, Labor or the Greens in the Senate and more than one in eight in the House of Representatives. And this is a phenomenon which is particularly stark in the regions. It seems that this rising minor party vote is more often than not a protest vote against the major parties, a vote for anyone but them, rather than a vote for a particular policy platform. And this voter disillusionment is not just an Australian experience. In recent years, we've seen outsider politics on the rise across other developed nations. The Brexit vote in the UK, Donald Trump's win in 2016 are just two recent examples. But why are Australian voters angry? And why particularly are they so angry in the regions? Grattan's newest report, A Crisis of Trust, The Rise of Protest Politics in Australia, takes a look at the reasons behind the voter disillusionment in Australia and makes a number of recommendations for major parties and politicians that could go some way to rebuilding trust amongst voters. Joining us today to talk through this new report is Budget Policy and Institutional Reform Program Director Danielle Wood and Associate Carmela Chivers. Welcome, Danny. Welcome, Carmela. Thanks, Megan. Hi there. Danny, I've touched briefly on it in my introduction, but can you explain in a little more detail just what's been happening with the minor vote here in Australia? Yeah, as you said in your introduction, it has been going up um, for quite a long time. Actually, since the Second World War, we've seen a steady rise in the vote. It kind of fluctuated according to minor parties that were prominent in their day, for example, the Democratic Labor Party or the Australian Democrats. So we see it going up and down, but trending upwards over time. And then in this report, we really focus on the period since the 2004 election. Since that time, there's been a very steep increase in the minor party vote. So first preference Senate vote for anyone other than ALP, um, Liberals, Nationals or the Greens rose from 12% to 26% in the 2016 election. So it's a huge shift in voting patterns. As you also mentioned, there's a sort of a regional element to that trend. So people in the regions have always been a bit more likely to vote for minor parties than those in the cities. But that gap between city voting patterns and regional patterns has been getting wider over time. So we're setting out really to try and understand what's going on with both of those phenomena. Just quickly, um, A question that has been posed by a few people, why is it that we chose to include the Greens as a major party as opposed to a minor party? We chose to look at them as a major party really because of the period we were looking at, which was between the 2004 and 2016 elections. During that period, their vote actually barely changed. So the sort of the rise of protest that that we're analysing in the report doesn't seem to be flowing to the Greens. Mm. So I think the Greens vote is something, you know, really interesting in and of itself, but that may be a discussion for another day. Um, sure. What we were interested in is why it was that Australians were increasingly going for someone other than the kind of standard selection and mm. the, the Greens didn't really fit into that story of protest vote. Mm. And how is Australia's trend comparing to, to global trends when it comes to minor party voting? 
Well, this is obviously you know, a, a topic that's front and centre right around the developed world. We've seen um, rise of parties, particularly far-right parties, um, throughout Europe. Um, we saw Donald Trump's election as president in the United States, you know, a Republican president, but very much from outside the political mainstream, um, the Brexit vote in Europe. They're all examples of people um, protesting in some way against the status quo. Um, and again, that's a long-term trend. If you look at um, vote share for centre-right, centre-left parties across the developed world, they've been trending downward for a long time and in a lot of places even before the global financial crisis. So this is not just about economics, there's more going on. My understanding is that this move to minor party voting isn't necessarily due to voters feeling motivated by the policy position of their chosen candidate. Is that, is that correct? Well, what we found is that the minor party vote varies a lot by state. So sometimes when people are thinking about the minor party vote, they think that you're talking about one nation, but it's much, much broader than that. Um, so one nation did very well in the 2016 election in Queensland and to a lesser extent New South Wales. But it was you know, Nick Xenophon in South Australia, it was Jackie Lambie in Tasmania, it was Darren Hinch in Victoria. And when we look at those candidates and their parties, they don't have a lot in common in terms of their policy positions, in terms of their ideologies. Um, so unless we think that you know, we've got voters with an entirely different set of concerns in each state, what that says is it's probably a protest vote. Mm. Um, so people are wanting to let their displeasure at the major parties be known at the ballot box and they're voting for someone who, whose name they know in, mm. their, in their particular state. You also mentioned in the report um, micro-party vote. What, what exactly is that? Well, we define micro-party, and I think we might have come up with that name, so I'm not, I'm not sure this is official. Um, but we look at it as parties that are getting less than 3% of the vote mm -hmm. across the board. Um, so the kind of major minor parties, if you like, are the ones I just mentioned, like One Nation sure. and the Nick Xenophon team. Micro-parties um, tend to be smaller. They're quite often um, single-issue parties, like mm. the older Australians parties, there was a marriage equality party, which probably now no longer will exist after the next election, but often animal justice party, they're, um, you know, they're sort of have a particular issue that they want to push. Mm. They've been growing in number over time and quite strongly actually in the past four elections, and they're also attracting an increasing share of the vote. Mm. Now, Danny, we've discussed before on this podcast, um, following the release of the Regional Patterns Working Paper, the social and economic patterns of regional Australia compared to the cities. Now, does economic security explain the rising minor party vote? Uh, well, there's two aspects to the question. It's, does it explain the rise in the vote overall? We didn't find good evidence that economics was the key factor mm. driving the vote. Um, and there was a few reasons for that. Um, first of all, the minor party vote jumped up most between 2010 and 2013. And that was a period when actually real wages were rising quite strongly in this country. It was the second wave of the mining boom. It was a period where inequality was, was pretty stagnant. Um, so those sort of standard economic explanations for the minor party vote don't seem to fit. Um, beyond that, when you look at the kind of economic attitudes of minor party voters themselves, um, they're not particularly different. They sit somewhere between the ALP and the Liberal Party in terms of their views on um, you know, taxes and welfare payments and those sort of things. So they're not particularly minded towards high levels of redistribution. The one sort of place where economics does seem to matter though is they are more likely to be sceptical about 
globalization and the effects. So they're more likely to identify as working class. They're more likely to um, you know, not believe that free trade has been a good thing for this country. So there may well be some element of economics in the minor party vote um, in terms of that sort of scepticism about the effects of globalisation and free trade and, and immigration, as we'll probably come to later. Mm. Um, the second part of your question is a kind of city-regional divide yeah, yeah. Um, and to what extent that is explained by economics. So as we talked about in the regional patterns um, discussion, there's something really interesting we found is that the kind of on a per person basis, the gap between cities and regions isn't getting wider. Um, so income growth, for example, is pretty consistent across cities in the regions. Um, unemployment's not noticeably worse. Inequality is not noticeably worse in the regions. What is different between the cities and regions though is population growth. Um, so we've been running a very strong immigration program in this country. Those immigrants are largely settling in the cities, particularly the major cities and, and some of the big regional centres. Once you get outside of that, um, populations are either stagnant or in decline. So what that means is that the, the total size of the city economies are growing um, much more strongly than that in the regions. Um, and that also leads to um, quite significant cultural divides between the two. And on that, Camilla, what about cultural divides? Are they having an effect on the minor party vote? Yeah, so there's some work that's being done on this overseas, uh, looking at the Trump vote in the US and the Brexit vote in the UK. Um, and that work looks at sort of two different cultural explanations for um, voting for outsider or anti-establishment parties. Um, the first is uh, a hypothesis that these voters are responding to social changes that remove personal status or individual status from particular groups. So they tend to be um, people who once had privilege in society and may now be losing it. Um, so for instance, um, people who might, who are male, who are white, who are older, um, might feel that social liberalism and social changes um, and perhaps political correctness are eroding their own status. Um, the second possible explanation is that uh, people are worried about cultural changes that are undermining a traditional way of life or a traditional national identity. Mm -hmm. So that's more to do with loss of community power uh, and a feeling that you want to take back control over the direction and pace of cultural change. Uh, so we, we kind of looked at these two different hypotheses by researching uh, the data on social attitudes in Australia. Um, the first direction was to look at social liberal questions. And what we found was that uh, social liberalism is being increasingly accepted across Australia. Uh, people are more open to uh, diverse sexualities, um, to feminism, to uh, women's equality, to uh, racial equality, things like that. Uh, and we also found that there really wasn't very much difference between minor party voters' views and major party voters' views on those questions. Mm. Um, when, you, when you break it down to different attitudes on different questions. And not much difference between cities and the regions as well, which I thought yes. was really interesting. Mm. Yeah. That is interesting, yeah. Yeah, so, um, 
when you look at it at a top level, it doesn't seem to explain why people vote for minor parties overall. Uh, and then when you look at it from a regional perspective, uh, it doesn't seem to be explaining that mm. either. Um, the marriage equality vote was like a really interesting demonstration of that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there were parts of regional areas like um, sort of central Queensland, for example, that were more likely to vote for no. Mm. But, you know, regional Victoria had you know, quite a high mm. yes vote. Um, mm. So that you can't really make a generalisation about cities versus regions yeah. when it comes to these kind of questions of social liberalism. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that um, I think it's really interesting that uh, Sydney had some of the highest rates of um, a yes vote right in the inner west uh, and then 40 minutes away you had some of the, the lowest, lowest yes votes so it goes to show that uh, the attitudes to these sorts of questions are really diverse within cities and across different regions yeah. so it doesn't really explain why you would have such a big difference between um, minor party voting in the city and minor party voting in the regions and what about the second theory the loss of community power Loss of power is a much better explanation mm. for why the minor party vote is so high and rising faster in the regions. Um, minor party voters are much more concerned about cultural change that is undermining a traditional Australian way of life. They're much more sceptical of um, things like changing the date of Australia Day or changing the inscriptions on public statues to acknowledge um, indigenous experiences um things like that they also have have this sense that um things might not be as good as they used to be or that their grandfather's lives um might have been easier or um m more respected um than they are today mm. um and that also feeds into uh cultural differences between the regions and the cities. I think that that sense that things aren't what they used to be is also quite strong in the regions. And it's perhaps becoming more salient as cities are changing so much faster than the regions are. Mm. And is that, um, I, I noticed in the report you guys mentioned um, how disconnected the regions feel from, you know, politicians in sitting in their towers in Canberra kind of thing is that is that you know I think that's definitely it? a big part of it yeah, yeah. Uh, I was really surprised to find that 70% uh, of people in regional Australia feel ignored by politicians in Canberra wow it's pretty big mm. um, and also in our regional consultations we had a similar story coming through people told us that they felt they were left out of policy making politicians weren't listening to their concerns and when politicians did appear to be listening they didn't walk the walk they'd mm. put their akubra hat on um, and show up to the town hall and then disappear again until the next election time mm. um now that's probably that's probably been a problem for a long time for regional australia but i think that the difference now is that um the cities are changing quite a lot there's um as danny mentioned there's really rapid population growth in the cities um, the regions are being drained of population at the same time and while that's occurring we're running quite a high immigration intake and those immigrants are settling in the cities um, and when you look at the survey data you find that 
people in the cities really aren't very concerned about immigration, but people in the regions where there are very few immigrants <laughs> are extraordinarily concerned. Mm. Uh, so I think that's probably not necessarily directly related to the impacts of immigration. I think it's a reflection of um, fears about the way that Australian culture is changing. Fear of the unknown almost. Fear of the unknown. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and and a sense of lost control. Mm. Um, mm. And you see that also reflected in the way that minor parties, um, minor party rhetoric um, and the way that minor parties present themselves. It's often a way to protect um, Australian national identi- identity or mm. true blue Aussie identity, mm. um, which is different to a sort of cosmopolitan city identity that's defined by um, globalisation, ethnic diversity, multiculturalism. So it sounds like whilst they've had some impact, neither cultural issues nor economic disparities are the only explanations of the rise we've seen in minor party voting. So what's um, the biggest issue you've come across in the course of this report? What we found is the most important explanation, particularly for the overall rise in minor party vote, is falling trust in government. Mm. So if you look at the period since 2007, more people agree that government is run for a few big interests. More people agree that people in government look after themselves. More people say that they don't have faith in democracy (laughs) as an institution. Governments don't know what people think. Governments don't know what people think. So it doesn't matter what indicator you take of um, trusting government or the esteem in which government is held. Things have been on the decline since 2007 and um, more recent data that came out even earlier this year suggests that, if anything, things have declined since the 2016 election. So trust in government is a big issue at the moment and people have little faith in the major parties, which is why we think seeking out someone other than them. Mm. And when you look at what it is in terms of a survey or attitudinal data that differentiates a minor party voter from a major party voter, trust is the one thing that jumps out at you. Mm. You know, they're not particularly different on average on economic issues. They're not particularly different on average on social issues. They even rank themselves as being centre of the political spectrum. So they're not left wing or right wing. Um, they're smack bang. That's in right. The they're in the centre. And the one thing that groups together, you know, a voter for One Nation with a voter for the Nick Xenophon team with a voter for Darren Hinch is lower trust in government. Mm. And you can also see in the minor party platforms that they are picking up on that sentiment. Um, So they very much cast themselves as outsiders, outside the political mainstream, and they are really sort of tapping into that concern in the electorate. Yeah, and they promise to keep the bastards honest. Um, (laughs) Keep the bastards honest. (laughs) One of my favourite ones that I've seen on the Jackie Glanview website, I think it's changed now, but um, she had an image of herself wearing thick rubber gloves and cleaning a bathroom with big big bold text saying, cleaning up Canberra. Is that falling trust only happening in the regions or are city or people living in the cities having that as well? No, that's right across the board. Mm. So regions tend to have a little bit lower trust than mm. people in the cities on average, but that gap isn't widening. Mm. Um, so we think you know the 
the cultural divisions that Carmela were talking about really accounts for that sort of Extreme. rising gap between mm. cities and regions, but the overall rise in the minor party vote is largely about falling trust in government. And what sits behind that falling trust, in your opinion? I think that one thing that we um, was out of scope for the report but is important is the way that the media landscape has changed in recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, so more people are using online media to access the news uh, and particularly social media. And that 24-hour news cycle means that people are more switched on to what's happening in government. Um, and we're now more aware of politicians' behaviours, which the public might not be totally on board with, uh, but maybe wasn't it wasn't so clear that this was what was occurring. Um, mm. So even though it probably was would never have been considered okay, nowadays it's actually much harder for politicians to get away with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that exposure, people are starting to distrust. So we need to actually change the culture of Canberra. We're not aiming to go back to a golden age of politics. We actually need to make politics better now mm. um, and the way that politicians are behaving now needs to be better. That's right. I think, I mean, every time there's um, a scandal, you know, it's that's just... It just the Daily Mail. Exactly, front page <laughs> of the paper. It's just slowly chipping away mm. yeah. at, at public trust. Mm. And, you know, if you're already feeling cynical about political parties, every time that comes out, that reinforces that cynicism. Mm. Um, so, you know, we talk in the report about trying to improve the the rules of the game. So looking mm-hmm. at things like political donations and how we might restrict them, looking at things like regulation of lobbying, looking at things like um, over what period politicians can move into industries where they've been a minister in that field after their political lives. All of those things, I think, would help... Um, address that mm. kind of steady flow of, of scandals mm. and the questions that people yeah. feel about you know whether the government's being run for the few or the many yeah and what about um more particularly the rhetoric of the major parties so the things that they're coming out with in their election periods and and and, and things like that you know the over promising and under delivering look absolutely in a, a policy sense i think that the major parties need to engage with this as well i think both sides have been tempted to tell the electorate what they want to hear so we can fix housing affordability we're going to generate all these new jobs um, we'll do something about power prices and when the government doesn't have the levers um, at its hands to actually control those things i mean they they can have an impact but they can't fix those problems overnight they create unrealistic expectations in the minds of voters and then those expectations are dashed and once again people end up feeling more cynical So being more um, honest with the electorate about what are the limits of government power, what they can do, and then going away and actually delivering on those promises, Mm. I think would go a long way to help restore trust. Yes, the classic rule, right? Under promise, over deliver. deliver. (laughs) Always. (laughs) It's the best way to get ahead. (laughs) I think as well, um, something that comes up a lot in minor party policy platforms is reforming democracy and changing the way that uh, the public is able to engage in political processes mm. and policy making uh, and 
things like citizens' referendums, for instance, where people can um, lobby the government to look at a particular issue are really big and really consistent across different minor parties that are calling for this sort of thing. Uh, and I think that's a reflection of um, the changing ways that people are engaging with um, community groups in general. So uh, I d dug into the numbers on membership in um, for the major parties and found that they've been leaking members since the 90s um, and branches are um, dropping off the map. Uh, the membership is ageing. And that's something that you're, you see across society. People aren't joining community groups in the way that they used to. So we need to think more about how can you engage differently with the public. Uh, and that might be about uh, improving your social media or it might be about actually going out there and being on the ground and things like that. Mm. I think that, you know, the declining member numbers, as they've declined as well, they've become less representative of the, the general population. So we've got a figure in the report that the average age of a Liberal Party member in Victoria was, was 62 years old. Um, Labor membership, we know, is largely drawn from the union movement, which is a declining fraction of the Australian workforce. And what that means is that you're getting your views and your kind of, um, you know, ground policy work from, from a group that aren't as representative as Australia, of Australia as a whole. And we also see that then the candidates they're pre-selecting are coming from a narrower range of backgrounds. Um, so much more so than in parliaments in the 80s, for example, people elected today tend to have been either um, political advisors, union officials, or lobbyists of some type. So I think Australians, when they look at their parliament, they, they you know, have a genuine question to ask about how representative are they and are those kind of fields of experience broad mm. enough to, to teach them about the concerns of ordinary Australians? Yeah, and I think that feeds into a sense that um, vested interests have more sway over policy making than the public interest. When you feel that uh, your politicians aren't representative of the nation, mm. then it appears that there might be a certain group that's in charge and they're making the rules to suit them uh, rather than your group. And that feeds into those cultural uh, cleavages that um, I was talking about before. So what's what's the impact of the rise in the minor party vote? Do, do policymakers really need to be that worried about it? Well, we certainly know politicians are interested in it, but I think that question of whether policymakers should care is a really interesting one. Mm. Some people say we should care because if you have a lot of minor parties getting elected, that can make policy change hard. Mm. That's not necessarily correct. I think it can make for good or bad policy. Sometimes having to negotiate can improve policy. Um, so we would not say you know a high minor party vote per se is a bad thing. But I think there are some risks with a high minor party vote. Um, the first one, and we identify some examples in our report, is that the major parties will um, try and react in ways of, to try and stem the, the flow of votes to minor parties. Mm. And if they're doing that on an incorrect diagnosis of why it is that people are leaving, you could end up with you know, bad policy outcomes that are potentially also bad politics. Mm. Um, so things like if you assume that people are voting for minor parties because it's a backlash against social liberalism, which Carmela has you know, talked us through why that doesn't look to be the case, 
um, you, you may end up actually alienating the electorate mm. even further. Um, the other point I think is important is that it may actually be telling you something about the health of democracy. Mm. So if people are voting for minor parties because they don't trust government, that in itself is really important for policymakers to understand. Mm. Because when you've got low levels of trust, it makes major policy reforms harder to deliver. You don't have the buy-in of the electorate to, to do those kind of um, things that might have short-term pain but are in the long-term good of the nation. Yeah. Yeah, and if a vote for a minor party is a protest vote in general, um, then I think we should take heed. Mm. So then what can be done by our major parties and politicians to shift the trend? Well, I think they need to focus on why it is that people are leaving. So that points you in the direction of doing things to rebuild trust Mm. um, and doing things to improve social cohesion. So on trust, we've already spoken about a few of them. So as I said, you know, looking at the rules of the game, looking at lobbying, looking at donations, looking at the revolving door between lobbying roles and and politics are all things that need to be on the table, I think, to restore public faith in the system. A period of, you know, toning down the rhetoric in the public debate and going about delivering on policy, I think, would also go a a long way. And no doubt, free Malcolm Turnbull's hoping for that. Um, But... As we said, you know, under-promising, over-delivering, I Mm. think, would be helpful in rebuilding trust. Mm. I think it's also important that uh, the major parties and politicians recognise that symbols are important and that they show leadership and promote unity and social cohesion across different community groups and across the cities and the regions. Mm -hmm. Uh, We could be doing more to allay concerns that things are changing too fast or that we're losing our own national identity um, and provoking fears about those issues can actually cause quite strong political reactions that could be destabilising. I think, um, you know, none of this will be a quick process. Once trust is lost, it takes a long time to restore. Mm. But there are things that government can do that we've pointed to that they can start on doing right away. So rebuilding trust, rebuilding cohesion will be extremely important, both for policy outcomes and politics in this country going forward. If politicians deliver more of the same, I think we're only gonna see that minor party vote continue to rise. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Danny and Carmela. It seems we've got some interesting times ahead, both here in Australia and globally. Um, to download a copy of the full report we've discussed today, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. As always, you can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news, reports and events by subscribing to our Twitter at Grattan Inst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And of course, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.